There are lots of movies that feature Native Americans. Dances with Wolves, Wind Talkers, um, The Lone Ranger. Some of them even portray natives as sympathetic human beings. But films created by Native people about Native people are few and far between. 1998's Smoke Signals, based on a story by Sherman Alexie, tells the story of two young Indian men leaving their reservation on a great American road trip with a Native twist. The movie received accolades and stood out during the late 90s independent film boom, but how does it hold up today? Guest host Bill Hodges and I sat down with some craft beer to decide. So join us. It's time for episode 53 of Toasting the Classics, Smoke Signals. Hey, welcome to Toasting the Classics. Uh, this is a podcast where we take something that people call a classic and we talk about it while drinking something inspired by it. And then we decide whether it's still a classic. I've got a guest host today, Bill Hodges, who has been on the show before. What, what did we do before? We did uh, Edward Abbey, right? Yeah, we did some Desert Solitaire. Desert Solitaire, time. right. So we're staying in the West with this particular purported classic. What are we doing this time? I think it was sort of a, a mutually agreed upon. Yeah, I think it was mutually agreed upon. I think we were talking about it, the topic and, and this particular film came up called smoke signals smoke signals and we were sort of talking through because the uh, desert solitaire touched on some issues about well it was mostly about conservation but it touched on some areas having to do with indigenous rights and like and like the guy's opinions about native people so we were sort of discussing wouldn't it be interesting to do something with a little bit of a native flavor to it of some kind we talked about maybe dances with wolves which is funny because that gets mentioned in this movie does um, yeah but what did we go with so we went with the film smoke signals which is smoke uh thing. from 1998 and it was um it was based on a book originally by a native author named sherman alexi right um, 98 was later than i thought the film was going to be when it's it started out in the 70s and i thought it was going to take place then and then it, it, it did a time jump but I didn't realize the movie was as recent as 1998. I thought it was maybe older than that. I think the book is a little older than that. I'm I'm curious when that book actually was written. Um, I think it's like 1982, 1983, sometime in the early 80s. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 contemporary. I mean, this is not like super old. um, No, it's not. And and one thing about it is that it's one of the I think important areas that they start talking about is how just kind of challenging and making and kind of really making fun of a lot of the the stereotypes um, that had been used prior to regarding Native Americans. Making fun of, but there's also an interplay between the stereotypes and like what those do to an Indian's perception of themselves, right? Because Thomas, who I think is a stand-in for the author, wouldn't you agree? I think Thomas. That's right. Thomas is more the the main uh, the main character from the author's perspective. Well, you know what? We're kind of getting into it, and we're not really letting people who maybe haven't seen this film, although I, you know, go out and see it. Uh, it's definitely interesting. If nothing else, it's definitely an interesting little piece of of uh, Americana, especially related to Native stuff. So I recommend go see it. But why don't we try a little synopsis so that we don't get too far into the weeds? before anything else gets going. So do you want to give it a shot or shall I? Sure, go ahead. Okay. So this is a, this, so this is a movie. Um, it's like a, like a sort of um, lower budget, like kind of like indie type of movie that came out in 1998. It's uh, about two young guys growing up on the Curtiline Reservation up in Northern Idaho. One of the characters, his father, his estranged father, who's like moved off the res and lives way down in Arizona, passes away. And they sort of go on a on the old American road trip to go and try to uh, tie up his affairs. Is that sort? Of, that's 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 sort of the bullet points right there, right? Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd, I'd say so. And and the, so it starts out with the father, whose uh, name is Arnold. He rescues Thomas, one of the two characters. So the two characters are are Victor and Thomas, the two these two guys who kind of grow up. At the same time on the reservation and, and are the main two main characters. Thomas loses his parents in a fire when they're little kids. Right. And Victor's dad saves Thomas, the baby, from the fire. So the right. two of them are the two of them are, are super connected right. uh, in a lot of ways. And who raises Thomas? It's 
Is that's that his grandmother? grandmother. That's his grandmother. She doesn't seem old enough to be a grandmother, but I guess she's the grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, actress doesn't. The actress didn't seem like she was that much older. So one of the things we do on Toasting the Classics uh, that seems uh, kind of inappropriate occasionally, if I'm being honest, is we have a drink related to what we're doing. So yeah. this one, alcoholism is uh, not like a main theme, but it's in there, right? Like it's definitely in the movie. Arnold, who's the who's Victor's father, was definitely battling alcoholism. Yeah, yeah. And it's part of why he leaves. He has a big fight with his wife about she wants to stop drinking. And uh, that's sort of the driver for why he ends up dying, you know, a thousand miles away in Arizona. But anyway, like I said, it seems kind of inappropriate that we're drinking, but whatever. I mean, you know, and also like as a white dude, I don't really want to comment on like alcoholism on reservations. I know it's an issue just from hearing native people talk about it. Not even just, you know, because there's a stereotype connected to it. But the reality is it's, it's a problem and I don't, you know, so anyway, but we're having a beer <laughs> as inappropriate, <laughs> as inappropriate as that kind of feels, but we're having a beer. So it's not really a problem for the main characters of the story. In fact, I think they both just don't drink. Right. That's what, and, and I think they even say that. I think they do. I think when they get, I think when they, they don't get arrested. Well, I guess they're arrested, right? Well, they're brought in, they're brought in and they're questioned by a sheriff after they're both involved sort of in there was an accident and they both run off the road before, before hitting this car that had just been in a wreck. Um, and then they're called in to by the, by the sheriff of wherever I, they are. I was really glad that that resolved the way it did because they, you know, there's a guy with his car in the middle of the road and they almost hit him and they get into an accident. And then he saves the girl's life by doing this sort of like battle of marathon run to go and, uh, and get her get her medical attention. And so I was really glad because they, they take him in and they're like, they think they're getting arrested and charged with something with the accident. And I was like, what? this doesn't make any sense. What, what did they do? They didn't do anything wrong. And then that's essentially what the sheriff's attitude is. He's like, yeah, you, you guys didn't do anything. And I was like, okay. But then at the same time, I'm like, well, then why did we have that whole sequence? <laughs> it was sort of like, obviously would be in real life resolved very easily. And then that's what happens. And I'm like, I don't know. There's a lack of dramatic tension there to some extent, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. And I think I think the intention there and and I haven't read the book that this is based off in a long time. But I think that with the with the book. Oh, did, was, did you read the Sherman Alexi book? Yeah, I did. Oh, um, I read I read I almost, it in college. Yeah, I, I kind of wish that I'd read the book. That would have been really neat. Not that we would do the same thing uh, on the show, but I think I would like to read that book at some point. That would be really interesting. Yeah, it's a good book. And I think then the title is is has stuck with me forever and because it's yeah that's good i like the lone ranger and tonto fist fight in heaven yeah yeah. so tonto tonto has got to be apache i think is that right or is that just left probably probably they're they're in silver city and they're in new mexico for the most part i think the lone ranger i'm not big on the lone ranger but tonto there's a tonto national forest actually oh is that right on the boundary between arizona and new mexico and a Tonto National Monument and things like that, like all out in that region. So I don't know what the connection is there. I always thought it was because Tonto means like a stupid guy in Spanish. Well, and that's and right. And so yeah, so, Tonto is Tonto is stupid. And it was always kind of like, well, why why are they continuing to go with this name for yeah. this Indian? Right. I mean, maybe maybe it means something else in Apache, or maybe it's one of those things where someone gives you an obnoxious nickname and you just decide to lean into it. Oh, well, like when the British used to call Americans Yankees and they just took it as we took it almost as being like a national anthem during the American Revolution. It's sort of like, a oh, this is what you call us. You know, that would be a really interesting thing to get into the Lone Ranger in some instantiation, like the show or the movie or something. Oh, my gosh. The horrible film with... uh... I never saw it. I never the one saw with uh, what's his name? Uh, Army Hammer and Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah, uh, that did not look interesting to me. Um, some sometimes I think in Hollywood there are some guys who are in charge of calling the shots in Hollywood who are really old and out of touch about what IP is worth something. And someone my dad's age would probably think the Lone Ranger would be a big deal 
And in the 21st century, I, as a 45 year old guy, barely remember what the Lone Ranger is. I don't think there's a lot of people out there clamoring for a new Lone Ranger movie, you know? When I saw it like back in when I was a kid in the, you know, in the mid 80s. Right. Um, I think there was the film Silver Bullet. Silver Bullet is a werewolf movie. Are you thinking of Silverado? No. The, oh, gosh. What's the there, name? There was a Lone Ranger movie when we were kids. There was. And what I was remember that it being out. And I actually kind of remember digging the music. The music is pretty stirring, like the William Tell overture. Mm-hmm. That part, that part's pretty cool. Like when the Lone Ranger rides into a fight and that music is playing, that's, that's solid. That's, that's kind of like the Indiana Jones theme. Like it's, it's really good. It's a really good theme um, for an adventure character, but that's really all I remember about it. I'm going to oh, pop my beer. What did, what did you get? So I got a Sierra Nevada hazy IPA. That's exactly what I got. That's exactly what I got. I have limited options here. Uh, where are you right now? Where are you physically? You're in, you're in like Bay area. I'm in the, yeah, I'm in the San Francisco East Bay area. Um, I'm in Richmond, California. You're in in A's country, not Giants country, right? That's right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I got the hazy IPA as well because my my options are super limited here. I I live in a small town in New Mexico, and we've got one little liquor store in town, and the choices cannot be great. This I actually went down to uh, Walmart and got. So I was surprised. They had several choices of different Sierra Nevadas there. And frankly, I can't complain. If Walmart can provide that, that's not too bad. That's more selection. When we were kids, do you remember? I feel like our parents would have had like four beers to choose from. Probably. Right? I mean, there was this big explosion of options in beer in the 90s. Yes. And I think the first like craft beer, I don't know if if you would still call it a craft beer today, but the first sort of independent not Budweiser, not, you know, not one of the St. Louis or Milwaukee places was Sierra Nevada. I had Sierra Sierra Nevada at a party in the late nineties. And I remember thinking like, wow, this is completely different than anything I've ever had before. It's had a a place in my heart ever since. Sierra Nevada started up in Chico, California. I I think they have another bottling brewing facility out East. So Chico's like, that would be up there in like the mountain country, like the Sierras. I it's mean, well no not i mean it's it's called sierra nevada but really it's in the central valley it's um, oh really chico's Chico, central valley. okay Interesting. yeah it's uh it's about an hour north north of sacramento okay okay up near uh Redding. nowhere near as far north as i had in my head i was picturing somewhere way up there for for a person who's not from california it always blows my mind how much California is left when you go north of San Francisco. So San Francisco is actually pretty much like in the middle of the state. It is. Yeah. Right? In and fact, just like, south. I think just most south of the middle. Just south of the middle. Right. It's not even the middle. I think most people from the East Coast just would not. I mean, obviously, you could go look at a map. But I think in your mind, you're like, there's Northern California, which is San Francisco. And there's Southern, which is L.A. And it's like, that's all Southern California. You know, like essentially in, in terms of the half. I it say is. that by way of bringing it back around to the movie that we're actually talking about, which uh, takes place in the Pacific Northwest to some extent. To some degree. Yeah, it's it's just well, although they they go from northern Idaho to right. Arizona down to Phoenix. Right, right. That's true. That's true. Which is do they mention so they meet his dad has a friend relationship unspecified friend named Susie who's like a much younger woman she's like the age of the of the main characters what what tribe is she from Did they mention um, they don't say they say that she is from New York but they don't actually say what tribe she's with okay because she says she goes to a powwow um, in New Mexico yes and that's the first time she's ever been around like a lot of native people so maybe she just didn't grow up on a reservation I don't know that's one thing that I'll every time there's native people in movies or TV right? First mm-hmm. of all, there's like a dozen actors that just are in the same stuff over and over again. Most of the faces in this movie I've seen in other things, right? Yes. And this, like, and act- this was like an early start for several of them. Yeah. Definitely. So Adam Beach, who plays... Uh, Adam Beach is one of the most recognizable faces, I think, as a native actor. I mean, I've seen him a million times in different yeah. things. Yeah. He's, and he play, yeah, he's played in a lot of stuff. He was in wind talkers and he's in right you know he had to learn navajo for that movie yes i i he heard did, read about he did that. a six a six month course learning navajo to be in that movie 
that's pretty impressive like, which is an incredibly difficult language to speak right like not not like anything else although i think they said he, i don't know whether he grew up like learning he's like ojibwe i think something like that he's canadian uh he's from like eastern he's... canada for sort of, so I, I think i think that's what i don't know whether that's related to navajo in any way at all because navajo is originally from canada if you know what i mean like like the, like the people came down in like the in the second millennia millennium ad and so they have a related language to some places in canada but i'm not sure that it's related to the ones out there farther east he is anishinaabe anishinaabe is i think um so i think that's a lake a manitoba large, but it's like a large group that includes a lot of the smaller tribes that you might have heard of like okay. ojibwe i think that's sort of a broader language family kind of thing anishinaabe i don't know i don't really know a whole lot about it i know it's not cree and i think Susie's cree and so she's from Eastern Canada. I think everybody in this is pretty much Canadian, except the, the actor who played Thomas, Evan Adams. It sounds like he was from, uh, he's Salish. Ah, okay. But so, so weirdly enough, that makes him pretty close to the Coeur d'Alene people. Right. Because they're, they're Salish, but they're Salish, they're like inland. So their language and everything is very much related to the people that live in British Columbia and Washington and places like that. But it's a kind of a different group of that. And I, I was actually surprised to learn that there were people that were Salish that were that far inland, like as far inland as as the it's pretty much like the headwaters of the Columbia River, right? Yeah, I think so. The sound about right, like out there and I can't remember which is it the bitter roots? Yeah. It says Plummer, Idaho. Plummer, so Idaho, yeah, but it's up there in that sort of narrow uh, uh, do they call it the panhandle of Idaho? It seems like it'd be a panhandle, but it's just yeah, like it is. It is kind of a pan, panhandle. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a panhandle yeah. of Idaho up there, and it's not far from the Canadian border. Um, and I think you know this is a people that lived on the river and, and fished salmon and stuff like that. So very, very different than you know a lot of things are about the Lakota. That's probably the most prominent Indian group in, in films, wouldn't you say? Or maybe maybe Dances with Wolves is just so big in my mind that I think that. Yeah, but I can definitely see that. Like the, like the Plains Indians in general, I guess, Plains Indians, yeah. are, are yeah. super prominent in... That and Navajo. And the Navajo and the Apache. The Apache, the Apache. are in a lot of stuff because, because, I mean, let's be honest, for like a century, Indians were antagonists in things against the Cowboys and the Cowboys. Most of that's in the Southwest, like in New Mexico and, and Western Texas and places like that. Would this be one of the first things where the protagonists are the native people? Well, and that's and that was an important part of I think this film is that indeed that you know it was it was made as a kind of as a film of by indigenous peoples with indigenous people starring in it. And yeah, well, here's the question. But here's a question about it: Is it for indigenous people, or is does it expect? I was going to say a white audience, but essentially like a non-indigenous audience. That could be anybody. It could be Asian, black, white, Latin, whatever, but not native. Is that the is that the intended audience? Just uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would think that they'd want to achieve kind of the largest viewership they could. Yeah. Right. Well, but I mean, in terms of the art you're creating, not just in terms of commercially, but in terms of the art you're creating, are you expecting the audience to be non-native, probably, right? I would think so. Would so think you're so. sort of so that's that's kind of your intent when you're making something like this. Yeah, have you ever seen Thomas, the actor Evan Adams? Is he he's not in much else, is he? Uh no, no, not that I know of. I I was looking uh, him up a little bit and trying to see where what else he has been in. It sounds like he's uh in a lot of more like niche things. Yeah, um... he, he's he's not just native; he's also gay, and I think that's a big part of the stuff that he's done going forward. Okay. okay. And that's, if you could think about it, the, 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 um, in terms of like audience, the pie is getting pretty small there. You know, like if you're interested in doing things that are about the gay native experience, that's um, I think today that would be huge. Like if he was still acting, I think there'd be a huge market for that in 2022, like books and whatever, like a movie. I think you could put out a movie with, with that experience and people really be interested in that. Yeah, you think more so than than in the nineties? Yeah, I mean, 
I think there would have been some people that would have been interested in that in the nineties, but today that's pretty mainstream. Like people being interested in like anything with any kind of queer intersection. Mm-hmm. That's like very much the zeitgeist today. So I think he could, he could have had a huge career if he was around today. Yeah. He's uh he's 55 now. Yeah. Yeah. So he's obviously still alive and could he's definitely... still, he's still around. It looks like yeah. he, um, You're talking about Evan Adams or, or yeah. Sherman Evan Adams. Yeah. Sherman Alexi's also 50. I think Sherman Alexi, is Thomas in this story. Doesn't Thomas come across as a little bit maybe on the spectrum? Yes. Yeah. And I think so. I mean, a little bit. He's not really because he's pretty good with talking to people, but he has a weird way of talking. That's that's something to talk about. What about that accent? Have you always identified that accent with native people? Well, that's what I was going to say is is I think I think so. I think he speaks. He's his speaking is sort of intentionally not necessarily mocking, but no, accentuating it. I think accentuating it. Yeah, because there's a way of like clip. There's a clipped diction to it that you can hear right away that it's something. It's weird because why would all those different groups of people who have completely different languages, not related to each other at all, there's a similarity in the accent, isn't there? There is in American English. Like someone who's Lakota from Pine Ridge or somebody who's like Mescalero Apache or someone who's Salish, you know, they, they all kind of sound the same when they speak English. And it's, that's bizarre to me. So where's that, how, where, where is that coming from? Or what are the roots of that? Do you think? I don't know. It's fascinating. It, it, it may have been some, it may come from, so sometimes when there's a cultural contact, you get languages that are like Creoles or pigeons. And yeah. it, it may be that in the West, what, like not long after the first contacts with Europeans, people might have started speaking a sort of lingua franca that was a pidgin English, if you know what I mean. This is just a complete hypothesis on my part, by the way. I might be talking out of my butt, but the accent may come from not the native language, but from the pidgin. So when you learn English, you develop an accent that sounds similar because the pidgin had to be similar because the pidgin was trying to approximate English. I don't know. It's, it's, I'm throwing that out there as a hypothesis. Somebody go do some work on that. I think that's interesting. But I have a writing group here. And one of the guys, he's a great writer. He's a white dude, though. And he makes he writes these stories. And a lot of them are, have Navajo characters. And when he reads the stories at the group, he does that accent. And it sounds great. It, it sounds exactly right. But, I'm, but at first, I was like, oh, it's uh, a little awkward. Like I feel like there's a little bit of like appropriation going on here or something. I don't know. Like you're doing a really good job of it. And I like these characters. Like I like your, you're not. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if somebody has probably researched that, right? Somebody has probably done some sort of linguistic. I accents, accents in North America are something that people are not as interested in as I think they should be. Huh. I think, I think accents in the old country, like especially in Britain are huge. Like people are really interested in accents. It has like political connotations and stuff. And I think in America, I listen to that. I hear that. It's just something I'm interested in. So I have sort of a sense of the different accents. But usually when I talk to people about their rhythms of speech and the things they say, people are surprised. Like I was talking to somebody the other day and uh, she said, she said, oh, I'm going to go do this. Do you want to come with? And I was like, I was like, I bet you have German ancestry. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, because that's a German construction, the way you say that. And people say it in the Midwest but it means you had German ancestors. If you break up your sentence and end it with with. Oh, interesting. If you see what I'm saying. And she was like, oh, well, that's interesting. It's just literally never given it a thought, right? But it's like that, that kind of stuff is, I, I hear that. That's interesting to me. But well, we, we honestly do have a lot of different accents throughout our country. Of course we do, because we have several hundred years of history here, right? And all kinds of different people mixing together, gigantic geographical scope. So, I mean, yeah, of course we do, but it's just not something that Americans talk about. But uh, anyway, so, so what'd you think about the movie? What'd you think about the story? I first watched this when I was just starting college. Oh, okay. So you've seen it before. So I'd seen it before. Okay. At that time I was kind of just, just kind of starting to take, like I was taking a, a native American studies class and, and uh, U.S. history from, from the native, pers- from the, from a native perspective and you, this film did you, read, out, uh, did you read bury my heart i think that was one of the ones that we did yeah the, I, I think it would have to knee. that's like yeah, yeah. Bury my heart at wounded knee that's like that's weirdly enough like one of the first times an american historian told the story from that perspective at all which always blows my mind i, I talk to people and they're like i didn't learn in school 
that 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 white people came to America and took the land from the Indians. And I was always like, well, what else did you learn? What what other perspective on history is there? Right. Like people people talk about that, like that was some big reveal they got when they went to college. And I'm like, that seems so apparent if you're paying any attention to history. That seems like one of the facts of American history, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so it wasn't necessarily like a, a oh, my gosh, this huge realization for me right. by any means for exactly this, the reason that you that I think you just just said in, in that if you, you're paying attention, like, yeah, there were people who were here and then. And we kind of we continued to, and it was American U.S. policy to continue to send them westward. I mean, I, I think it's and everything it, that went into that, right? It's more it's more complicated than that in reality, but yeah, I mean, yeah, essentially, yeah, essentially, you've got a story of you know people immigrating here and replacing the native people. I mean, that's just kind of that's the simple fact, and then the rest of it is more complicated. You know, to to what degree was it like? To what, to what degree was it like intentional genocide and to what degree was it just kind of accidental and, and a culture clash? And it's, it's a complicated story. It's a really interesting story. Um, it is interesting. But the simple um, fact is there used to be native people in places like North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina is a bad example because actually there's pretty decent population there. There used to be lots of native people in places like Ohio and today there aren't. And that's, that's a simple fact of history. That's hard to miss when you're looking at the history of the country, but. So are you, um, are you are you native at all? Have you ever had your DNA done or anything like that? You know, I've had my DNA done and and I don't I, I well so I'll say no, I don't have any genetic heritage there. I've been told I do, like my family. Same here. Been... Same here. I was told the same thing and I was so bummed to find out that it wasn't true. It's such a stupid thing to yeah. care about, but right. I was like I, I just like the idea of being connected to the land for like 20,000 years. Right. If you know what I mean? Like cuz right. I, I I just I love this land. I don't, I don't, not making like a, a patriotic statement or about the government of the United States or anything, but just this, this place, I just love it. And I just would love the idea of being connected to it so far back. And I'm just not just genetically, not that that matters, but. So for me, one of the reasons that I had started taking some of the coursework that I did was I just wanted to learn more about that, that sure. where those people are coming from, where, you know, and they're still obviously still around just, but in much smaller numbers right i wonder what are the numbers how many native people and i mean obviously you get into a problem of counting because you're talking about somebody who maybe has a little bit of native ancestry but like how many people who are pretty much would identify as being native exist today in in north america i really three or four million is it 10 million i really don't know let's look it up yeah the that's American an population in u.s it says and then, not, and then, not even not even population According to the World Bank, uh, 2020 for the U.S. Okay. as a whole, okay, it's 329 and a half million. Okay, the population of the United States as a whole. For a second there, I was like, wait, what? Okay, yeah, Got no, it. the population, yeah, the population as a whole for the okay. United States, 329.5. Yeah, that million. sounds. That's about what I would estimate. Yeah. Okay. And in 2019, probably the most uh, available current available information based on the u.s census for native americans right. is 2.75 2.75 million yeah native people okay yeah. well i guess that's so i guess that's one percent yeah give or take less less than one percent so that's um wow that's that's pretty uh that's pretty stark right like that's a pretty um small percentage of of the population and then you wonder, how does that compare to the population that would have been in the same area in 1491? I, I don't know. That's an interesting because there are huge, huge variations in the estimates of the of people living in the Americas as a whole in 1491. And it can some people say it's as high as 50 million people living in the whole hemisphere. But of course, the thing is, in the United States, the population was much, much lower. Almost everybody lived in either Peru or Mexico when in 1491. You would have had a huge number of people in Mexico and a decent number of people in Peru, and then very thinly spread out all over the rest of America. It might have been two or three million people, even if it was that high yeah. over all the United States. So yeah. population, in a way, has kind of recovered pretty well, but it's also been put into different places and just completely uh, i don't know have you ever read that book 1491 by the way no 
Oh, I love that's great. That's that's a that is a book that should be if you're learning American history, that should be one of the books. Like if you read 20 books, that should be one of the books. It's that's great. It's, okay. it's just okay. a description of what the Americas were like, like the day before Columbus or, or the year, I guess, technically before Columbus got here. It is a perspective I think is super important for understanding uh, America that, that just gets, gets left out. But I just finished the book Sapien. No. Oh, oh, yes. Yes. Right. OK. I know that book. It's an Israeli guy that wrote it, right? Yes. Really well written. Yeah, my, my wife read it and she really liked it. She was telling me kind of the thesis of it. And I was sort of like, uh, yeah, you know, I we have it. Maybe I'll read it at some point. But I was sort of like, I, I think I've covered this ground. I don't know. What's uh, what am I missing? Well, I mean, it, just interestingly, one of the one aspect of it is that talking about the migration, the migration to, to just all, of, all of Earth, all of Earth. Right. Okay. And and how it's thought. And, and I think recently there's been some interesting research about indicating that native populations actually arrived here earlier than originally thought. Right. But also just in how, as a species, sapiens kind of just took over. Sure. And what and kind of hypothesizing as to the causes of that. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's not bad. I would read Versus, that. Versus, you know, <laughs> between Neanderthal and Erectus yeah. and Australopithecus and, and these different. Yeah, um, why why Homo sapiens uh, took over from Neanderthals in, in Asia, uh, sorry, in Europe mostly, is yeah. a really interesting story. I, I'd like to, I mean, I've read a lot about it, but I'd, I'd like to hear some interesting theories about that. So that's... He, they, he does a pretty good job with it, I think. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so worth a, worth a read for that. So you know what you know what movie I thought sort of hung over this movie a lot. What's that? The whole movie doesn't play out this way, but the way they do it with the the, the little kid scenes and the adult scenes kind of blending together a little bit, it reminds me a lot of Boys in the Hood. And so and so, like on some level, you know, Boys in the Hood was about seeing what little African American, what the experience of African American kids are like in a bad neighborhood, and sort of bringing that to like a white audience. And on some level, I felt like this was somebody being like, well, let's do that, but let's let's do it for Native American people. And so and it was some of the same film techniques and things like that. The movie's completely different and the underlying story is completely different. But at the beginning, I was like, oh, OK, is this sort of is this sort of what we're doing here? But it, it, it isn't really. It, it's, it's different. And these kids are not really stereotypical, I think, to the way that the kids and boys in the hood are. I mean, you know, I think that I think the uh, one, at least one objective is kind of is is looking at stereotypes. Yes, definitely. But but I mean, Vic, see, like the character of Victor, right? Some uh -huh. of it, but he's and this is what I was saying about what stereotypes do to the people who are being stereotyped is Victor is consciously trying to take on a native persona that to a large extent has been created by whites in movies, right? Victor, Victor's doing that or Thomas do you think is doing that? Both, both of them in different ways. Okay. Because Vic, Victor is like, when he's trying to teach him, he's like, you got to have a stoic face, you know, like you got it. That, right. That's how you look like a real Indian. And I'm like, where, where's that idea come from? Right. I'm like, it comes from Tonto standing there, not saying anything all the time. Yeah. Right. Is or that the picture or the picture of all, all of the natives with their, their headdresses and, all standing there for their pictures, right? Right, right, right. Which is why no, which you know, and knowing about photography, nobody smiled in in old pictures because it took so long for the <laughs> to, to get a picture. Yeah, the exposure. That's that's all. So cultures, all cultures around the world in the 1800s, when you got your picture done, you sat there and frowned. Yeah. Also, because I think it took on. It, it's an interesting. I bet somebody could have a lot of a lot of fun studying that. But the smile is a thing that is a, I think, 20, 20th century American thing. Where Smile? Yeah, the smile. People started being like, when you see somebody, they should smile. The way mm -hmm. you're supposed to show you're happy, you're supposed to show you're approachable, you're supposed to show that you're carefree. And, and I think that's a very 20th century American thing. I see the pictures of my wife's family from Ukraine, from the Soviet Union. Everybody just looks there like scowling. It's partially that thing we're talking about, which is the old portrait style was you had to sit there for time. But it was also like a um, just the way they were. They just didn't. They thought they, they, they thought someone walking around with a big smile on their face looks stupid. Look like a golden retriever running around with like your tongue hanging out of your mouth. You know, you just kind of look a little half witted if you're smiling all the time, which is like 
I could see that. I think I think a lot of Soviet people thought Americans looked like morons because they were smiling all the time. Because we were smiling. But anyway, the, the idea Victor has that native people should be stoic is like that's a very white thing, right? That's a that's a, right. a thing imposed on native people as one branch of the noble savage myth. But and I think I think and I think that that was likely uh, Alexei's point to that. Yes. Yes, I think so. I think that's what he's doing. He's talking about those stereotypes, you know? Yeah. Especially because it sounds like Alexi, like we talked about before, is pretty much Thomas. I think he's way more identifies with Thomas because if you think about it, Thomas's stereotype is that he's trying to be, I think, I think he's trying to be like the medicine man, you right. know? And they, well, and they, and they, and Victor alludes to that. Okay. Or he even says it even. Yeah, no, I think, I think they say it pretty because he tells his stories, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he does that thing where he closes his eyes and he tells the story. Right. And I'm like, that must be Sherman Alexi. I mean, the guy's a writer. He's a storyteller, a professional storyteller. He must have identified with that, with that stereotype. I don't even know if that's a stereotype, but if they. As, as much as him. Well, and maybe an archetype, the, the, archetype. the oral tradition. <laughs> with and, the oral, right. The oral tradition and the archetype of the medicine man and the, and the Indian as a storyteller and things like that, which. I'm sure would have been a big part of, of their culture, of all the different native cultures. And uh, not just that, basically all cultures. I have this idea that everybody was once the way that we see Native American tribes as being. Everyone around the whole world, if you see what I mean. When, when you lived at a certain level of material culture, that we all would have had myths about like the, the, the landscape and, and um animal stories and myths and what am i trying to say like oral tradition you know would have governed everybody everywhere on earth right right like, well and then there wasn't even necessarily a a, a a written language per se no definitely for, mo- for most right. of the from for most of history <laughs> right i mean go back to you know six thousand bc and you don't have any written culture anywhere in the world everybody's living in small tribes all over the earth and i think that they would have I think that people in like, well, certainly people in Europe, but even in places like the Middle East where they started making cities, I think people were still, they would have been very recognizable as a tribal culture, the way that we see native cultures, Native American cultures, I'm saying. Like, I think there's nothing particularly special about North American natives in terms of having an oral tradition and things. That's just, that's how all humans lived. They just hadn't been uh, there, there, there were ur- urban cultures spreading from Mexico, I think, by the time co- Columbus got here, but they just hadn't gotten so far as, say, Idaho, right? There just weren't things like cities there yet. People were living differently. Just living differently. I mean, there were communities and villages. But... Yeah, definitely. And, well, um, and, and, and also, I think, I think a lot of, I don't know about in the Pacific Northwest, but a lot of Native people were already living at what you'd call like a Neolithic level. Like they were practicing agriculture, in other words. Some, some basic, some basic ag, you know. Like it, were, it, it varies from place to place, you know. Right. Like in, well, in and it's gonna, it, and it was based on where they lived, what resources they had available to, available to them, right? Based so were on, they based were on, they fishermen or were they hunters? Right. You know? If you live in northern Idaho, um, honestly, cultivating corn probably was very difficult to do because of how much daylight you get. You know, I, I I've always had this theory that essentially. It's how close you are to Mexico, because Mexico is where agriculture starts in North America. And you've got okay. these like big you've got these big cultures eventually, like, a, a, I don't know, like around a thousand A.D., eleven hundred A.D. You've got these big cities starting to form in the Mississippi River Valley. Right. And even like as far up into Ohio and places like that. But it's corn based agriculture. It's essentially something they learned by diffusion from Mexico. People in Mexico developed corn into a crop you could use. And then people realized, oh, we can do that too. You know, up in right. New Mexico and, and, and Ohio and Mississippi and places like that. And I think that would have been eventually, if, if Europeans hadn't come, that, that would have been the basis of an urban civilization all over North America. Well, so, and, the, and the, there were trade and there were trade trading routes that were quite complex. Oh, yeah. At that time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And so, and the, well, there, there's, so I was in Yellowstone uh, the summer before last, and there's this cliff there where there's a great big huge outcrop of obsidian of obsidian and it was you could find obsidian from this outcrop in in like indiana and ohio like it was being traded all over north america because it was an extremely valuable resource it was very accessible 
and somebody, yeah, and it was, yeah, and well, it was beautiful and it was a good tool. It was just a great thing to trade all over the place. And so it was going all over the continent from this one little place. And if you, I mean, just to try to wrap your head around what that trade network would have been like, it, that, that kind of thing is just really interesting to me. But yeah. I can't even think of what native tribe, is that Arapaho where Yellowstone is? Well, anyway. Around Yellowstone? Yeah, probably Arapaho. The thing is, there's a big transition in native cultures when you get to the, that last high set of mountains, the Northern Rockies there. There's a big transition in cultures as you cross over to the West, to, to, to like the Columbia River Valley and stuff like that. And then there's like a different cultural zone going east from those mountains. Shoshone, Nez Perce, Blackfeet. Yeah, Nez Perce, Nez Perce, that's right. They're from Yellowstone. Because when you're at Yellowstone, there's a bunch of stuff about Chief Joseph's March. There's a trail there, the Nez Perce Trail, and you can walk part of Chief Joseph's March. Oh, okay. So, I don't see, like I learned about Chief Joseph in elementary school. Mm-hmm. So how could you learn about that and not, I don't know. I, don't, I never understood people that would tell me they didn't learn anything about what happened to the natives. I'm like, that, that's just something I grew up learning. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I had it. Maybe I was lucky to go to a good school or something. I don't know. But. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, yes, it's there, you know, the, and at the same time, the, the amount of history that is taught, I think in, in our elementary and, and primary and, and secondary schooling is varies quite a bit. It varies Gosh, quite a bit. And, and I mean, you've, you've told me some of your personal stories about teaching in like difficult, like urban, like inner city, for lack of a better phrase, inner city environments, and just mm-hmm. how much you're just trying to get the basics across and keep the kids reasonably disciplined and stuff like that. And, you know, the idea of getting across these complex ideas sometimes would just be impossible. Public school is an extremely, it's a difficult challenge, especially in some places, you know? It is. Well, and when you have students who are, who are reading so far behind what right. is right. what is expected it does it creates a lot of challenges I, did you ever see uh, northern exposure yes and, just, I, I, and the actress who was in that the one right. native <laughs> one right. of very few who actually had a much of a speaking a recurring speaking role right right um was in this I, film as well i think she she won emmys and stuff for that role didn't she i think so and she was very much like the same stereotype we're talking about the victors dealing with the stoic uh, native. Yes. Right? Like she was sort of like, that was like the funny thing about her character on Northern Exposures is how quiet and like stoic she was, which is kind of, I'd like to know how much that's a reality and how much of that is, is something imposed. Right. I think in part, at least it's imposed. I mean, I've, I've heard discussions around how, you know, there's not, they don't get a lot of lines. Right. And she so she got she would get her her line in every week. Uh huh. But rarely was it consistent conversation and dialogue that was taking place with with that with her, with her character. No, the gag with the character was that she wouldn't say much. They had a whole episode one time where she um, went down to visit Seattle and it was the first time she'd been out of Alaska and the first time she'd been to a city. And Joel, the main character, was like desperately trying to find her to like rescue her from the big city. And they kept cutting away to her just going around the city and having like a great time and like loving the city and being perfectly safe. And then like, you know, so it, it was a, that was a pretty good show. I actually really liked that show. I'd like to go back and watch that again sometime because I thought they sort of played on a little bit of like they understood that they were dealing with stereotypes and things like that. For the moment. It was a pretty conscious show. It was pretty good. But I don't know. I'd need to go back and watch. I haven't seen it since whenever it was on, like maybe when we were in high school or something. Sound about right. That sounds about right. Yeah. When was that? Like early nineties? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Maybe like, maybe, maybe even 1990 until like 95 or something like that. Maybe, maybe pretty much the time I was in high school. Why was she driving backwards? Is there something wrong with the car? That's, that's what we have to, I mean, that's what we're kind of interpreting it. Right. Saying, yeah. thinking okay maybe something's wrong with the car it's an old beat up car that only drives in reverse you know some of my favorite things about the movie were were i don't like some of those little things that the the small town jokes right right like the like the guy the, the dude that sits under the umbrella on top of an abandoned rv that broke down in 1972 <laughs> and like does the weather report and does does the traffic report that's pretty yeah. funny i like I, that's just a small town joke i mean i know a reservation is essentially like a small town, like times a thousand, right? Because yeah. everybody would know each other. 
and there's not much going on because it's not like we put, although I have to say, it looks in the film as if the Cartoline Reservation, that's pretty good land. That looks like a decent place to live. It looks like it'd be good farming country and that it's not super unpleasant like some of the reservations I've seen. I mean, it's they're, they're at least they weren't that far from Spokane. Uh, from Spokane, from the river, from the Columbia, and they were a fishing community people. So bit, Right. Well, they said that the salmon are all gone, so they can't fish anymore. And there was a big lawsuit. I don't know if you read about this, but the Coeur d'Alene had a really large territory, you know, back in uh, pre-contact times, essentially. And they had this area. And when they built it, I think they built a dam on the Columbia mm-hmm. and it flooded, you know, like half of what was once the Coeur d'Alene territory. And they actually sued to try to get that land back. And, and the lawsuit failed. They weren't um, able to get it. The dam breached. Well, they didn't want to breach the dam, but they just wanted to own that that land. To the, have that property. The, uh, okay. the, the lake, essentially. I imagine it's a place where rednecks take their boats and you know putter around and stuff now. But <laughs> I'm, I, the Native people would just like to own that, maybe. But um, you know that apparently didn't work for them because there was a reservation. And well, that's a whole that's a whole thing, isn't it? The whole reservation system. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've I've been to a few that don't look so bad. The Mescalero uh, reservation up here in the mountains near us is actually pretty nice country up in the mountains. Okay. Um, but I've also been to Pine Ridge in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. That looks awful. A lot of what looks so bad. I mean, it, it seems like pretty marginal land. Well, because frankly, if you can't hunt buffalo anymore, that land isn't great. If, if you know what I mean, like it's really not particularly productive. In, that, also, in that particular area. Yeah. In that particular area. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was uh, it was also just the social the, the problems. You could just see them right away. I remember like I, we got onto the reservation and like I think stopped for gas. And it was like some some old guy came over and, you know, asking for money. And he was just like the drunkest person I've ever seen in my entire life. And it, it was uh, the only person I saw like that. It was just um, it just looked bad. You know, we went to Wounded Knee and there were like, you know, there were a bunch of people around and there were these kids and they looked they were like emulating like ghetto, like American ghetto life. They were like dressing like, you know, like NWA. Just, it just looked like, it looked tough. It looked like a really tough place to grow up. But uh, I don't there's know. There's a, uh, there's a show now on Hulu where these kids like, and it's, and it's on a, on a reservation. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it's like, I want to say Reservation Blues. Reservation Blues is a Sherman Alexi book. Right. And and I'm wondering if there's a if there's a connection to this the show that's now on out on Hulu by a similar think, by I, a similar I, name. I kind of think there might be. I think maybe I maybe I read something like that. I'm, I'm and I'm curious, yeah, if there if there is in fact a connection to to Sherman Alexi because here's a question, and I, this may end up not going anywhere because I didn't think about it beforehand. But why is the movie called Smoke Signals? I, I think that the title of the book is a little wordy for a film title. But why why smoke signals? What's what's the meaning of that? Okay, there's yeah, the fire. Right. There's the fire. The, the the fire. Yeah. It's it's actually it's actually based on on one of the short stories in that books in that book. And Oh, it's like a collection of stories. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And Wait, do, we know, do we know what the title of that story is? Yeah, it's this is what it means to say Phoenix, Arizona. Really? Yeah. Oh, so Phoenix is something that arises from the ashes. True. So it's, I think that it must be connected. I can see that. Yeah. Right. I mean, because you got a fire and smoke signals and the kid that's saved from a fire. And also, that would be a metaphor in general for people surviving, indigenous people surviving the conquest and rising okay. from the ashes. Yeah. All of those things. Did, did, you, is this, did you think this qualifies as my overwrought theory of the week? Because I try to do, I try to get one of <laughs> I try to get one of those into each show, but yeah. Oh uh, yeah, this qualifies. Yeah, I think that qualifies. But I think I'm on the right track there. I think that's I, the metaphor he's dealing with there. I, I don't think I'm completely talking out of my out of my backside. All right. So something we usually do on Toasting Classics is we usually talk about what was our biggest surprise. Because that, what I found is that when there's and I don't know if this particular work has this kind of status, but sometimes when something's really famous and it's a classic, you develop a picture of what it is. And then you go and you engage with the text directly and it's different. It's completely different than what you thought it was. Mm -hmm. So that's why I wanted to do the biggest surprise as part of the show. 
is because I always found, you know, you go and you read the Iliad, for instance, for the first time ever in your life. And you're like, wait a minute, where's the Trojan horse? It's not even in this. Right. And right. I find I find there's always something like that in the famous thing. Now, this movie, you know, doesn't have that. Kind of, I don't have a whole lot of impressions. of it. But what was your biggest surprise from sitting down and uh, engaging with this again? I mean, you'd seen it before. I'd seen it before. And, and seeing it again, it was interesting because I don't think that it had or I, I don't think it, the, the film impacted me the way that it it impacted me when I first saw it. You know, oh, granted, I wish that was that was a good 20 some years ago. Well, I wish we'd talked about it. How did it impact you? The first time I connected to the characters. Um, oh, I, I, you know, I should say this. Thomas kind of reminds me of you. Okay. Like <laughs> not, not that you like come across as being autistic. I know I said that about him. Not, not that at all, but he kind of sort of looks like you and talks like you a little bit in a way. And I was like, maybe it's just because you suggested the movie, but I was like, I was like, this guy, this guy reminds me of Bill. There's something about his manners that reminds us. <laughs> well, I don't. Know. I can kind of see that a little bit, actually. And I, so yeah, I kind of did connect with with Thomas's character. Like they, like when they meet people on the bus, and he just kind of has his like friendly way with people. I'm like, that's like something I associate with you. Like we'll be out, and we'll just kind of like be friendly with people and stuff in a way that I, 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 I would like to emulate in my life, but haven't quite managed to do. But. You know, the girl they talked to on the bus, she's also from Northern Exposure. The, yeah, the gym, okay. Gymnast right. is the one that's, she's, the, she's like a teenager who's married to the old guy. Right. Northern Exposure, that's the same actress. But anyway. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting connection. So you said uh, you identified with the characters. Yes. And I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm, you know, I'm 20 some years, 25 years older now. Right. <laughs> right. Can't identify with anybody anymore, Right. Right. Um, I think that that might be it. Um, that might be that might be my biggest surprise. It's just you know, okay, all right, I'm older. I don't know. Maybe the maybe if if I were no, so, no, no. Younger. Elaborate, elaborate on what you mean by that. I'm interested in that. So, so you're saying you identified with them when you saw it back in I don't know 2000 or whatever it was, right? And now you feel less like that just because they're younger, or I think so. I think because they're 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 younger. Although I definitely, and I think that I have just in my own life dealing with, you know, death of of parents. Well, yeah, my that father had... dying yeah. when I was when I was a young child, an infant. Oh, oh, okay, I see. What and you mean. so, yeah. because Thomas lost his parents as a small child. Yes, as but a baby. See, I was thinking Victor loses his father. And I was watching that experience and I know what that's like now as an adult. Yeah. Right. Like I know he goes and he has to tie up all these ends and people are like, you want this stuff. And you're like, I don't want any of this stuff. Like I was, I was watching that part and I was like, that's, I know what that feels like. Yeah. And I wouldn't have really identified with that as much when I was a little kid. Although you lose grand, I lost grandparents when I was little and there's a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, not entirely for, and are you more, you, so you're, I'm guessing you're more of a Thomas man than a Victor man. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I, I was also, you know, I was also a little surprised rewatching. I think something else, maybe okay. I don't know if I don't, maybe it's another biggest surprise was just how Victor treated Thomas. And I don't know if maybe I just didn't pick up on it as much. Oh, really? Yeah, that seemed pretty manifest to me. He's kind of a jerk to Thomas. I kind yeah, of one of my favorite things is how they grow together and kind of become like like more they're friends, right? When they're little, but they become more like equals and like actual friends. Yeah. Through the yeah, course I think of the story. That, I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, and I, that's one of my favorite things about it. I, I, I enjoyed that part of the of the movie. I, I like that kind of thing. I like watching dynamic characters and, and relationships that change in a film and stuff like that. So my, my biggest surprise is kind of trivial, but Susie, right? Who oh, is, huh? is it just me or did you have kind of a crush on Susie? Oh, big time. Okay. All right. We, we agree on that. She's Pocahontas. Uh-huh. The actress does the voice of Pocahontas, did the voice in Pocahontas, and then in the Pocahontas 2 direct-to-video movie, and then came back to portray Pocahontas again in uh, uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet, when all, when all the Disney princesses showed up uh -huh. in that uh -huh. movie. So that was pretty surprising to me. I was like, I can almost, she kind of looks like the way they drew Pocahontas in the movie. Yes, I can see that. And by the way, the whole Pocahontas phenomenon is something that if you're interested in Native American studies, I'm sure we could have a field day talking about that. That would be really interesting sometime. But um, that's neither here nor there. 
So um, what are we doing with this? What are we, are we toasting? I think it's worthy of toasting. And you do? Okay. Toasting is a classic. This is a classic film. Yeah. And I think the reason why is that it, go, it goes a long way in establishing Native Americans as having, being able to have, having a film about Native Americans by Native Americans mm-hmm. and the level of dialogue and communication and and just overall i think they do a good job you know um, you know the bechtel test the bechtel test bechtel test which is like it's a feminist critique thing oh okay you have to have a conversation between two women and they're not talking about a man that's interesting in, in mm-hmm. the film and in the film and uh, you could you could do a version of that you know obviously for any any intersectional group of people but but for native people in this film this is one of the first times where you would ever see two native people talking to each other and they're not talking about some white guy. Right. Right. This is about, you know, inter- th- these are about family dynamics between everybody that we're talking about is native and the characters are native and their, their concerns are, I mean, their concerns that are universal, right. Losing your father or whatever. There's nothing particularly native about that. That's a universal concern. But the fact is you've got these, these characters talking, talking to each other and it's, that's pretty rare. I can't say I've seen that in a whole lot of things. There are there are tons and tons of Western films. And even today, there's like contemporary things like Longmire that's in Wyoming. And there's a lot of Native characters. But the Native characters are all in relation to a white guy, if you know right. what I mean. Right. To, so, some white guy is always involved. Some white woman is always involved. Somebody white is involved with their concerns in every way. So this is pretty rare like that. So do we know who suggested this? So do we know who gets the tiebreaker vote? Oh, gosh. I think I probably suggested it, right? Okay, so theoretically, it's up to me. Okay. Is kind of where I'm leaning. So I am, I really, really want to like this movie because of what I'm talking about, because of the, you know, Native American Bechtel test passing. And I feel like I'm seeing a cross-section of something I wouldn't see otherwise. I don't know if there's a whole lot of other movies like this that are contemporary Native American uh, and it's pretty well done. It's not some like, you know, fly by night movie that's been put together. But I just it, I'm on the fence because the movie, if I'm being honest, is pretty corny sometimes. It is. You know what I mean by that? Like like the big reveal about the fire, how it was actually him that started the fire. I was just kind of like, yeah, you know, nothing about that kind of hit me really hard. I enjoyed uh-huh. the movie. I like the characters. Oh, it's really hard for me to say. If I say that it's a classic, it would be a classic within some kind of pantheon of, like you said, like a Native American studies kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think this movie as a piece stands out enough. I don't think it's quite of the high enough quality otherwise. But I don't know. I think that's pretty I I think that's pretty important. I I think I'm going to go ahead and toast. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and toast. But it's 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 with a little bit of a caveat that uh, that it's more for its. uh, it's more for the, 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 the window that it shines on something that you wouldn't otherwise see than it is for the quality of the film. Although the film is enjoyable. I, I liked it. I, I, I like these guys. I like watching them for an hour and a half. So that's nice. But, you know. Well, and that's, and that's, and that's I would, I would I, I hate agree the, with I hate, your sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off, but I do have to get this little joke in there. I'm, okay. to- I'm toasting, but with reservations. Oh, no. <laughs> So anyway, sorry. What were you going to say? Wow. I don't know if I can follow that. I was, I was going to agree with you. And I, and I think that that, the reasons that you just said are, are looking at these individuals and native Americans as a whole, without it having to be through the lens of, of white people. Right. Like for instance, dances with wolves is a much better film. In, in like every way, in, in how it's made and everything. But it is a story about a white dude that goes out to the West and meets Indians. Right. Uh, I think it does it does a lot for, as a white guy, to make me, to, to humanize Native people and to make you root for them and stuff like that. And that's great. But it's a, it, at the end of the day, it's about Kevin Costner visiting the Indians. And so it's, it's not quite there, but it is a better movie. I wish there was a movie like this that was of that quality, if you see what I mean. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, but anyway, but I'm going to go ahead and toast it because for now, I think this is probably the best um, legitimate 
something that gives you a sense of like like a contemporary Indian experience in a film. And I haven't seen anything like it. So I'm going to toast on those grounds. All right. Excellent. So I'm going to clink a couple of cans together here because we're not in the same place. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's but did, did that sound like anything? It did. Anyway, it, that sounded like you dropped something. But. Cans. Yeah. Cans are not very impressive for cheersing. No. But um, anyway, so I think we're done for this week on Toasting and Classics. Bill, thank you for joining me again. Thanks for having me again. We'll have to talk about what the next thing we're going to do will be. All right. I, I, I don't like think it. that sentence made sense. We will have to talk about what the next thing we are going to do will be. So I think that's what I said. I think that made sense. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Toasting the Classics. This is Dave MacArthur. And Bill Hodges. Peace out. That's it for episode 53 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, stay tuned for what we'll be drinking while we discuss Ridley Scott's 1984 Macintosh commercial. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know how you plan to rise from the ashes. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. Thank you.